Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host today our program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society, featuring Ronaldo Brutico, the president of the World Business Academy. I'm a member also of the board of the directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we will conclude questions and comments from you, our audience. Uh, occasionally we do get calls in and emails are ready, and some of these we will bring up later on in the show. If you'd like to play, I'm sorry. If you'd like to play, place a question at any time during the show, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. When you do that, it will activate a little signal on my screen. I will be able to call on you, and you'll be able to ask your question at that point in time. We also want to mention that. If you go to the World Business Academy site, which is www.worldbusinessacademy.org, you can sign up uh, for our Currents and Commerce newsletter, and you can also find out more information about the show and how to download uh, episodes that have already aired. One of the purposes of these calls is to present to you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to be discussing several very current topics, the first of which is from called From Cairo to Madison, Citizens in the Streets, Implications for Global, Domestic, and Local Economies. And we'll also be touching on two uh, slightly smallest topics, uh, second which is 1.3 billion people, they're carrying water uphill. The third one is 2011 is proxy season, the Academy's recommendation on shareholder resolutions about corporate political spending. After our first segment, uh, we will do what we call an expanded lightning round which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, with emphasis this month on the implications of oil and commodities inflation. And during that section, we'll also have our additional financial literacy portion of the call, where Ronaldo and I will explain exchange-traded funds that track commodities, examples such as the DBO, DBC, DBA. We'll explain what they are, how they work, and how one uses them or not. With that, let me turn the show over to Ronaldo. And, Ronaldo, you're on. Well, thanks, Howard, and thank you again for hosting the show. Um, you had one slip of the lip, though, Howard. It's, uh, the URL is worldbusiness.org. Uh, we are the World Business Academy, but the URL Correct. is www.worldbusiness.org. Um, well, today's topic, Howard, as you know, we, we, we put out the, the, the email. It would be from Cairo to Madison, Citizens in the Street, colon, Implications for Global, Domestic, and Local Economies. When we wrote that a couple of weeks back, um, we were looking at a lot of developments across the landscape. I'm going to list them in a moment. Uh, actually, let me just refer to them now. We were looking at everything from what was happening in Cairo, Tunisia before that, what was going on and has increasingly developed is an incredible uh, change in Iran in the last three days. We didn't know about that. 
uh, two weeks ago, but now it's a, now we do know. We were looking at Saudi Arabia and the $36 billion it voted to give to its citizens so that it would feel like they were participating more in Saudi Arabian prosperity. Uh, we knew that Libya was a problem. We knew that the American ability to respond to it was limited, given the being bogged down as we are in, in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We knew that the Sultan of Oman for the last 40 years was rapidly trying to uh, reach a rapprochement with his people uh, without giving up control. We knew that Yemen was basically destabilized uh, and it was over 200 villages, Saudi Arabian villages, had been abandoned on the Yemen um, border. We knew that Jordan had a king, Abdullah, who was trying very hard to keep his Palestinian population happy while at the same time retaining his monarchy. Uh, and we, as we looked across this incredible landscape, um, we, we were also struck by um, the economy of Wisconsin, the uh, political agenda to basically strip bargaining authority from union, uh, union representation or bargaining authority from uh, state workers. And as we saw all that happening, and by the way, it, it's interesting, I'll come back to that in a moment about Wisconsin, and then we saw uh, the, 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 the dramatic people in the streets uh, reaction, not only in Wisconsin, but then we've seen it now in a number of other states, including Georgia, Ohio, and several others. Um, and it reminded me of this incredible opening paragraph from Charles Dickens' masterful work, A Tale of Two Cities. Now, do you remember A Tale of Two Cities was written about the impending, at that point, impending and ultimately the uh, breakout of the French Revolution. Uh, and the book begins like this, and I want you to listen carefully because everything in this paragraph relates to what is happening in the world today and specifically relates to this show. It reads as follows. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven, or we were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil. I can't think of a better summary of the situation we find ourselves in domestically and globally. Um, last night, the documentarian, Michael Moore, appeared on the Rachel Maddow show holding a pair of handcuffs. And what he was referring to was, if you saw this year's Academy Award winning in documentary, uh, was a movie called Inside Job, about what happened on Wall Street, about the tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars that were redirected into private hands, all to little or no social benefit other than we avoided a collapse. Inside Job, as the, the, the producer, director, and writer of that show came up to get the Academy Award, his opening line was, what's amazing is that we stand here today, three years later, and not one financial executive has gone to jail. Michael Moore, on Rachel Maddow's show last night, held up a pair of handcuffs and said, we're coming to get you. These are the handcuffs that belong on those people in the financial sector and then proceeded to use the word war repeatedly. This is class war. This is class war. Why should we start our show with that today? 
because it's time for us all to take a deep breath and step back. It's time for us to take a deep breath and realize that we have both incredulity and belief. We have light and we have darkness. And it's time for us to realize that the noisiest authorities are insisting on us receiving this all as normal, and it is not. As we all know, out of the horror of the French Revolution with its guillotine and its mob that ended up devouring its founder, Robespierre, in a in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a wash in the blood of not only the nobility and the monarchy, but of innocent people who stood in favor of it. In the midst of that great French Revolution, some things emerged, including a belief of egalité, fraternité, etc. Also what emerged was Napoleon. Out of the present situation today, we have to look and say to ourselves, initially as residents of a particular country, most of our listeners are U.S., but these comments are really more global than they are domestic. Regardless of which country in the world we live in, there is a massive realignment and a shift going on. In some countries, Jordan, Bahrain, Oman, the, the, the monarchies are actually responding in ways that are probably going to keep their monarchies intact and enrich their citizens with economic reforms that are long overdue. In other places, like Libya, where Omar Gaddafi is literally bombing not only his own people, but his own oil infrastructure. Uh, thousands of people are dead. Many, many, many more will die if the West does not intervene with a no-fly zone. And of equal significance, the lifeline, which is the pipeline of oil from the Middle East, is strained now like never before. Oil's at $125 a barrel for Brent crude, which, by the way, for my listeners, I urge you to start looking at the price of Brent crude, not West Texas Intermediary Suite. West Texas uh, is a manipulated number. It's only showing at about $103 a barrel. The global number that everybody tracks and trusts is Brent, and the Brent number is at $125 a barrel, which means those $4.50, actually $4.55 a gallon gas prices that are being experienced in Hawaii today, the price today, $4.55 a gallon, are coming to the mainland. So, Ronaldo, if I might inter interrupt for a moment on this. Sure. One of the lessons of the French Revolution and all the turmoil that it did create, all the drive toward democracy, ended up 25 years later at the Congress of Vienna, where all of the monarchies of Europe were able to reassert their power and for the next 25 to 50 years and more in some cases, able to reinforce and reimpose the same kind of dictatorial governments that had existed prior to the French Revolution. So there's some historical examples to, that we need to look at as well. Well, uh, and, and look at why that about. happened, Howard. That happened because, as I said, Napoleon emerged from the French Revolution. Exactly, exactly. And because Napoleon emerged, the kings of Europe found new credibility because they became the unifying force to stop Napoleon, who otherwise... And Napoleon, and Napoleon, who started out as the George Washington of Europe, ended up becoming the next almost Roman Empire, Roman Emperor of a fractured and disunited Europe. Actually, he crowned himself, and, as you recall. He crowned yes. himself emperor because he wouldn't allow any other person to crown him. He was an mm -hmm. amazing fellow. So the, the, the reason for that, that history lesson, I think... And why we were, this is a commentary on business and society, this show is. It is at this point becoming so uncertain 
as to what the economic conclusions will be from this level of social disruption that I felt it was critical to start by looking at the level of disruption in a thoughtful way. Holding up handcuffs and saying we're coming to get you, which is Michael Moore's way of dramatizing the question, or Governor Walker basically putting a bill through the Wisconsin legislature which didn't require a quorum, so there could be no dissent, on less than 24 hours, actually less than two hours' notice, which had as its only purpose to strip union bargaining, and by stipulated by the governor had no economic impact whatsoever. That was the stipulation they entered into in order to be able to vote on that bill. In case you're wondering the technicality, that's what it. Well, those degree, that degree of, 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 of dislocation, whether it's Michael Moore in his handcuffs or whether it's Walker, Governor Walker in Wisconsin, doing dead of night legislation to strip voting rights and, and organizing and bargaining rights from workers. These are two poles of a society which is increasingly becoming bipolar, meaning the U.S. society. And a society which is, going to be, is increasingly, I think, um, subjected to the potential for violence. At that same time, that same society, if you look at the hearings that are going on today in Washington, uh, Peter King of New York, the Republican from New York, is doing a, a set of hearings to basically, I believe, demonize Muslim Americans at precisely the time that we need Muslim Americans to help us to continue to monitor the Muslim community in America so that radical elements won't be able to live within our borders without detection. Uh, and, 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 and I was touched by the over the compelling statement of the only Muslim congressman uh, in America when he touched on uh, the nature of at least one Muslim who died heroically in 9-11 trying to save his fellow Americans. Uh, I was touched by the fact that the divisions globally via terrorism, the divisions globally in terms of the, the, the yearning for more say over one's life, whether that is a healthy well-channeled um, revolution, if you will, like occurred in Egypt without violence, or whether it's a disastrously violent one, like the one in Libya, or whether it's the reassertion of enormous control by extremely retrograde forces, as has now happened in Iran. For those of you who didn't notice it very quietly in the last couple of days, uh, the head of the Iranian Supreme Council, Rafsanjani, who is hardly a moderate, considered a conservative, as one of the fathers of the revolution, stood with um, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, has been replaced by a cleric who is so conservative that it is believed that the reason they've done that is so they can appoint the next grand Ayatollah, who has complete and total power. Uh, and the person they're going to appoint, it appears to be, is uh, the spiritual mentor of Admetajan. So you're talking about a world that is incredibly becoming polarized, between Taliban and traditional Muslim in certain countries. 75% uh, of the deaths in Afghanistan this year were the result of Taliban violence on Afghan citizens rather than U.S. violence, an interesting statistic. So what we have to look at, before we can talk about the economy, which we're going to get to, we have to look at this level of societal, de societal destabilization. What's going on has to be addressed. And the only way you can address it is actually there's two ways that this will get addressed. Either we will see an eruption of violence and destabilization of those societies that are trying to hold back change, America being one of them, by the way, or we will see thoughtful citizens engaged in peaceful dialogue 
resolving the problems that the political systems that they inherited were incapable of resolving. So I would say, if it were ever true, that this is no longer the time for sunshine patriots or summer soldiers. Now more than ever, probably no time greater than probably the founding of the Republic. But certainly this harkens back to the trust-busting of Teddy Roosevelt. Certainly this harkens back to the, uh, the, the railroad barons of the 1860s and how they had to be corralled. There is, a, there is a movement afoot, which the statistics cannot belie, that in the last 10 years, the rich have gotten remarkably richer. The top 2% have become incredibly rich. Uh, the middle class has been basically cut in half. Half of it's been dropped into the poverty line, below the poverty line. And the poor have become poorer. So we have a stratified economic reality in America today. And the American dream, increasingly, is hard to achieve. Ronaldo, given, given the enormity of these issues, these questions, is there some way you'd like to sort of break this up for our listeners that we can digest a piece of it at a time? Yeah, I think the first piece is there is no time left for so-called reality TV because the reality you need to be engaged in is the one that's happening in your country. So no more US. watching about what happened to Charlie Sheen versus what happened in Iraq. That's correct. It's like if, it, it, see, it, it, it may have been an a, a interesting conceit that we had the time to pay attention to Charlie Sheen. At the same time, it's important for us to know that we don't have that time anymore. We must become informed. There has never been a more important time in the world than people to listen to the show and to tell their friends because, if we don't start thinking together, I can assure you we will splinter apart and probably in violent ways. So, And violence can become class violence, not just violence with bullets, although I think the American economy is likely to experience both. So you've got two choices. One is to wake up, get engaged in a peaceful citizen enlightenment, self-enlightenment campaign, so that we can begin to address do we really have a, cri a fiscal crisis at the federal level? I would argue we don't, by the way. One's being give manufactured. A, give you a funny example of the news. Just the other day, Hillary Clinton was congratulating Al Jazeera in America for actually broadcasting news as opposed to, I think, ABC TV, which was asking the question of their viewers the next day is, what do you do when someone in the gym is making too much noise? The contrast between content and superficiality was perhaps never more exposed than that single day. Actually, John Stewart did a wonderful thing about uh, four days ago. He pointed out the night before on the nightly news, every single broadcast outlet, including MSNBC, Fox, ABC, and NBC, all led with Charlie Sheen. The only channel that didn't was Katie Couric. She led with the bombing in Libya for the first time, the Libyan government bombing its own people. That is, a, that is a commentary on what people are willing, the, the numbness that people are willing to sustain in order to not have to face the reality that's besetting them. Let me give you another example, which will transition us into the economy. We are right now, we had a 14% decrease in foreclosures this month. In fact, year over year, we're down about 36% over the last couple of years. Why? Because the banks, primarily Bank of America, Wells Fargo, were doing what was called robo-signing. They were processing foreclosures illegally. And, and by the way, there's billions of dollars of liabilities 
sitting there. I'm not sure why people are buying a B of A stock last week uh, or this week because I see some potential liability that's significant there. But putting that aside for a moment, the foreclosures have been dramatically reduced. There's a bill pending in the Hawaiian legislature, which has passed the House, I believe. It's now going to the Senate, which will, in effect, requ- requires every foreclosure, like B of A, to have a human being in the, in the room if a non-judicial foreclosure, which means there's no court involved, is to be attempted. More importantly, it's put so many restrictions on non-judicial foreclosures. Those are the foreclosures that happen by, by paperwork that this robo-signing was a big part of. Those non-judicial foreclosures are going to be harder and harder to get in Hawaii because, for a very good reason. If you're going to take a man or a woman's home away from them, you want to make sure you've got a human being in there representing the creditor and you've got a human being representing the owner, and you're going to work out, is there any possible way to keep these human beings in their homes? If that means that the banks will take a loss in the principal, it's probably better for the bank because if all that real estate keeps hitting the real estate market as it's been doing, the real estate market can't recover. And here's a statistic that's interesting. 23% of all American householders have more debt, 23%, than the equity in their home. Now, more debt on the home. Why is that significant? Well, you know, for most of us, it's not significant because we live there. It's not like an asset we're playing a roulette game with. We live in this house. So we're going to keep paying our mortgage because we're legitimate, hardworking, normal people. So the fact that 23% of us are, quote, underwater, close quote, is only a problem if we have to sell. What will permit those house values to come back up is if the banks stop dumping so much foreclosed housing on the market. So it's a good thing that foreclosures are going to be slowed down, and more importantly, it's a good thing that foreclosures are going to happen pursuant to the rules that we wrote a long time ago that weren't being enforced. So is Michael Moore correct that the banks have gotten away with murder? Absolutely. Is Inside Job accurate documentary? Absolutely. It's stunning to me that no one's gone to jail three years later, and no one's even likely to. It's stunning to me that Goldman Sachs was able to hit the Treasury of the United States with tens of billions of dollars and do it literally under the nose of the regulators. All that is stunning. And you know what? It's also water under the bridge. It's over. It's history. We took it. It's gone. You're not going to get the money back from Goldman Sachs or anybody, any other big banks. So what we have to do is stop beating up who might have hurt us before and start paying attention to who is hurting us now. We must have foreclosure reform. Twenty states, the attorneys general of 20 separate states, have filed lawsuits specifically to make the foreclosure process more fair and reasonable. I would argue that the street demonstrations going on in Wisconsin, asking the people of Wisconsin to think through the implications of taking away collective bargaining, not because the budget requires it, because as we all know, the unions in Wisconsin on the very first day of this matter offered to give back pensions and salaries. And I think that's a good conversation. I think it's a fair conversation to have with, with, with public employees to say, you know what, times are tough, we're going to need to take some of that back and work out a compromise to get it back. I also know that the total indebtedness of all pension liabilities for all states across the board is probably less than two-tenths of one percent of the potential tax revenue that could be generated in the next five years. So it, 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 these, we, we've had a manufactured crisis. I started to say a minute ago, Howard, I don't believe the federal government is in dire straits because of the deficit. I am a strong believer and have been on this show for a year 
that we needed to stimulate the economy, and frankly, we didn't stimulate enough. As you recall, I kept saying we need 500 to 750 million more. But we didn't have that money. So now what's going on is sort of a, a war where in places like Florida, for example, Governor Rick Scott, by the way, con- convicted of a felony for cheating people in his, in his health care company, uh, Governor Rick Scott is trying to take as much back in the way of cuts to education and, sa- and the salaries of teachers, $2,200 per teacher, by the way, so he could put the exact same amount of money into people's pockets as corporate tax deductions and property tax reductions. So we have a war going on, so to speak, of people who don't want to pay taxes and the rest of the people who actually want public services, like public education, like transportation, like clean air and clean water. So we have a very, very, very serious situation. This is clearly the best of times and the worst of times. It is both a season of belief and disbelief, of light and darkness. Interesting, the words, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Hope is the word that the president ran on. Despair is what we're increasingly getting close to. Where do I end up with this thought? Simply here, Howard. I believe that all of these issues we are facing are imminently resolvable in a way that will make virtually everybody, at least 98 to 99% of the people, happy. Notice I didn't say just 98. I'm in the top 2%. I'm going to be happy if this gets resolved peacefully. But it will only happen, and I want to underscore this, If we all choose to start paying attention to what's happening in our world, domestically and globally, and we start applying that knowledge as thoughtful citizens, we lend our efforts, our time, and our resources, financial and human, to the resolution of these very difficult challenges, knowing that as we do so, they will be resolved, we will do better financially, we will have a more humane society, and our grandchildren will not be forced to pay off a deficit they couldn't pay. Because, frankly, the size of the deficit is not an issue right now. The issue is, can we continue to get the economy to grow in the face of enormous inflationary pressures we're going to talk about later in the show, having to do with commodities and specifically oil and and grains. So that's how I kind of wind this whole thing together. And I say to myself, are people willing? Well, the people who listen to this show, are you willing to take responsible? If not me, who? If not now, when? How much worse does it have to get for people to turn off some of the stupidest television in the world that we watch in this country in order to start paying attention to what's really going on? And the information is there. It's on the Internet, even though you can barely find it on television. Howard, I know, was that cogent enough, or do you think that was very cogent, yes. And um, I just want to ask, are there, let's say, for example, one or two very simple, discrete things, other than turning off uh, the garbage on TV and and paying attention to what's actually going on, um, are there some particular things that people might do relative uh, for their own health, safety, welfare that uh, you might suggest? Uh, well, I mean, first of, all, people, yeah, uh, first of all, you have to start reading, folks. I'm sorry to break the news to you. Um, you. You might be able to read less and get away with it, but you can't read nothing. In other words, you went to high school in this country by and large. Many of you went to college. You have got to start using that education to start pulling in the information so that you can make an informed decision. You notice I'm not telling you where to come out. What I'm asking you to do is get in the game. If you don't suit up, you can't play. If you don't play, the game is lost. It's that simple. Ronaldo, we also do have, have a question that popped up on this topic, so let me cue in that listener, if it's all right with you at this moment. Sure. And that caller is calling from area code 650, last extension number, part of the extension is 2038. You are now on the air. Go ahead with your question, please. 
Yeah, but this is George McCown. Hi, Ronaldo. Hi, George. Hi, George. Good to hear your voice. Thanks for the message of the yeah. day. Not at all. Listen, a couple things. Wonderful, uh, and couldn't agree with your points more. Boy, it's a it's a really important time. I'm uh, reading four newspapers a day, and first thing in the morning, I get up at six, and a couple of them are from overseas, including the Financial Times that has the somewhat British European view of the world. But I wanted to make a point on the Charlie Sheen matter that is a little different than how ridiculous it is that we're spending our time on that. Charlie Sheen is mentally ill, folks. This is a man who is seriously bipolar. You can argue whether or not it was induced by cocaine addiction or not, as it frequently is. But what we're doing is we're displaying a mentally ill person on television. Imagine if that were a cancer patient. Imagine if that were, you know, somebody else with some kind of a terrible illness. I think it is immoral to be, you know, using this guy who's, who's mentally ill. Well, you know, and George, I, I think that that goes to a, a fundamental problem we have. And that's why I'm, when I say read more, and I, I happen to agree with you, by the way, I, I take the Financial Times, George, and I read it every day. I, I read the New York Times. I read the USA Today. I frequently read yep. the Wall Street Journal. And, yep. and, 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 and all these normal sources are just a starter for me because what, what I find most of my good information comes from is the Internet. I find that if I want to dig into something, that's where I go, and there's an abundance of really good information there. Uh, right. On the Charlie Sheen matter, for example, Charlie Sheen is now overnight hugely successful on Twitter. One of the questions I have to ask, and I couldn't agree with you more, I'm not a psychiatrist, but Charlie Sheen appears to exhibit to me, and I've had some reason to understand this, this diagnosis, appears to be bipolar, at the very least. At and the he very appears, least. At the very least. And, and it could be worse than that. He, he, he may even have a little schizophrenia, if you notice what he's been saying. Because when you when you hear voices and they're talking to you and the things that they say that they're saying to Charlie Sheen, some people would say clinically that's schizophrenia and and, and yeah. bipolar can often include that element as you know. Exactly. So I agree with you completely that what we're doing is we're doing this is like what P.T. Barnum it's the, it's, it's the freak at the sideshow at the carnival, right? The carnival yeah. barker used to say, you know, she walks, she talks, she crawls on her belly like a reptile. It's little Egypt. The idea that somebody with an abnormality would be a way to get the 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 part the by, bystander to come in and put a dime down to see the freak two-headed person or the monkey man, the ape man who had hair all over his body, which is another disease, as you know. Right. right. That, to me, has, is an indication of how low we've sunk. We've sunk to the point where NBC, CBS, Fox, ABC basically are acting like carnival barkers. Why? Because we have a distortion in the economic system. Jefferson said it best. The price of a vibrant democracy is a free and independent press. We have lost the free and independent press in this country because people began to realize that they couldn't make money with trying to do something like Edward R. Murrow. That to make money they had to do what's called infotainment. Entertainment that's informational. Right. When you look at the news in America, you see infotainment. Probably right. the best news show in America is, is uh, the McDale Lear Report, as you know. Absolutely. I can't recommend it highly enough. It has no bias. It's just news. And, and to a, little me, boring. a little boring occasionally, but it's the only one that you can literally listen to. Or, or you can turn on the BBC to get something a little more neutral, but even that has to be colored a bit. And, and, and so I couldn't agree more with Hillary's comments 
And I was delighted that Katie Couric on CBS, the so-called, quote, adult network, close quote, meaning its demographic has more gray hair like you and me, George. Right. CBS covered Libya as its opening story rather than Charlie Sheen. And I I, want to say this all goes back to somebody we all know in America quite well. You know, that saying, the philosopher George Santana said, if you don't read history, you're condemned to repeat it. We are repeating the history of William Randolph Hearst. Hearst had this incredible statement, if it bleeds, it leads. And clearly, clearly the architect of that in the modern time is nobody other than Rupert Murdoch. So the idea of, of titillation as a way to get audience only works if the audience is willing to demean itself to that level and it thinks it has the luxury of doing so. Anybody who can watch a person named Snooky in Jersey Shore who has time for that really loses the right in my book to complain about the fact that they're unemployed or they lost their house. Yeah. No, I agree. Ronaldo, the George, other thing I want to mention... Go ahead, go ahead. Finish your page, George. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to say also uh, thank you for, you know, saying everything you're saying. I, the other thing I want to emphasize, and you know what I do with my time these days, which is to work with Greg Mortensen on the uh, building of schools for girls in Pakistan and Afghanistan as a byproduct of that work. My wife and I have become real students of Islam, and I'm telling you, our biggest deal today is trying to understand this extraordinarily complex society that has a billion, two to a billion and a half people, depending on how you count, uh, that is the biggest issue in our world today, for just about every reason you can think of. And it's, it's our obligation as citizens of this country to become extremely well-informed, not through some McCarthyist witch hunt, uh, as is beginning to go on in Capitol Hill, but to truly understand the, the complex history of Islam and the West over a very long period of time. You know, two things and, I want to, two comments I want to make of that, George. Yeah. One is, uh, I want to thank you for calling the witch hunt the witch hunt because I know you're a lifelong Republican, and this is not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about what's important to know and what do we want for our society. So I want to just acknowledge you for that. But the second thing I want to acknowledge is you are the person who turned me on. I think it was like five years ago, George. You said, Ronaldo, the most important book I've read in the last couple of years is the Shia Revival. Remember that? Right. Yeah. Because you said it, it, it's, it's telling you, it, you telegraphed correctly, as it turns out in hindsight, George. It telegraphed the tremendous reversal of power in the Middle East between the Shia and the Sunni. And people in this country don't even know that there's a Shia-Sunni conflict. They don't even know how it started. They don't know what happened on the deathbed of the Prophet. And as a result, we, out of ignorance, we keep stumbling into bigger and bigger messes, which then inflame the situation worse. So I want to thank you for putting me under that book. I've recommended it to hundreds of people since. And I want you to read another book. And I, this, I read this last night, about half the night. It's called The Deadly Embrace. And it's about the relationship between Pakistan and America. And it's a mind-blowing book written by a guy who's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. I can't remember his, his name now. But it is very, very frightening, to be honest with you. And, and I, I thank you. We will we'll, we'll, we'll definitely look it up, and we'll, we'll cite the, um, the author in a second, too. But the... the thing I want to leave you with is I want to just make a quick uh, comment about what you said. Uh, your work and Karen's work 
with Greg Mortensen, a fellow of the Academy, I, I couldn't tell you how much more um, vibrant and vigorous and, 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 and important the work Greg does is. So if any of you um, feel so moved, do uh, you want to give the URL, George, to Greg's? Well, it's, <laughs> now, first of all, uh, the, the, the way you would know Greg is through his best-selling book, Three Cups of Tea, and more lately, Stones into Schools. Uh, the organization that he founded is the Central Asia Institute, and uh, I cannot honestly remember what the code, you know, the thing is, because I never email it. I'm always mailing his private address, so I'm okay. sorry for that. But okay, Central Asia Institute is good enough, and people do know Greg Mortensen's name, I'm sure, but three cups of tea will get you there. You can Google it. And I just want to focus on what George told you they've been doing, and because the World Business Academy was one of the, long before Three Cups of Tea actually came out, we not only yep. supported Greg's work, made him a fellow, but we also built a school in Pakistan. We paid for a school in Pakistan. And right. Greg does two things that are important. He builds them with his own hands with the local village, which keeps them set in, with a sense of ownership of the school. Number two, the school has to agree to educate girls as well as boys, and these are in Taliban-controlled areas of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so people, this is incredibly vital work. A third part of his mission now, and we're just in the process of actually uh, formally enlarging it, is to educate the American people and the world as to the importance of this work, particularly in the importance of educating girls. Absolutely. The rising status of women, as we say on this show, George, is probably the number one issue facing global society. By the way, the name of that author was Robert Mrazek, M-R-A-Z-E-K, M-R-A-Z-E-K. It's called yes. The Deadly Embrace. That's I'd correct. I'd like to add that it would be nice that after Greg has finished helping educate uh, Pakistani girls, it would be nice if we could turn around and help educate the American public once again about all of these issues that are going on and to get shift away from it, the Jersey Shore absolutely uh, right. to the and shores of Tripoli. His, part of his program is a thing called Pennies for Peace, which now has engaged 7,500 schools in this country and the children in those schools making small donations, pennies for, pennies for peace, to the effort that's going on in Pakistan. It's like wildfire. It's unbelievable what's going on. And it's helping to educate our young people about Islam, about the conditions there, about the importance of girls' education, about the importance of education in general. It's, it's a you know, I can't say enough about the power of this thing, and it's so unexpected, and it's so timely. Anyway, I'll, I'll let And I, I want to thank you also again, George, for all the work you put in there, and, and Karen, too, and best regards. And, yes, I, I am going to make that, um, that that little reunion dinner, so I'll see you there if we don't talk sooner. Right. George, Have thank you very much. Thank I you. I appreciate you calling in. And, again, just as a reminder to all of our listeners, if you would also like to call in and place a call, uh, the phone number is area code 347-989-8946. And once you do that, all you do, need to do is hit the number one key, and we'll be able to cue you back in. Ronaldo, any last-minute comments on this topic before we move on to our lightning round? No, I think we've, we've really done it. It's gonna, The only comment to transition, I really appreciate George calling in, because it, it, this is not a partisan issue, and it shouldn't be characterized that way. This, should be, this is a people issue. This is, a, this is a, an issue about whether or not we as citizens of a democracy and whether the citizens of planet Earth intend to become engaged once again or whether we'll permit ourselves to be so conceited that we'll think that we can literally fiddle while the planet 
or Madison, Wisconsin burns. And I don't think that that's an option. So I, with that in mind, I'd say, well, where do we see the economic disruptions coming that will most dramatically and directly hit uh, our our, uh, our global population, and as you know, it's commodity-based. Uh, it's, it's the grains, it's, it's, it's oil, and the implications of that. So why don't we just switch? If you want, um, we can we can do the commodity thing, or we can go into the lightning round and come up with the commodity thing. Howard, what would you like? Well, why don't we go into the lightning round uh, and then emerge on the other side with, with, well, actually through the lightning round, I'll talk about commodities since that is in fact our topic today. Um, and for those of our viewers who may be new, the lightning round is, again, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, uh, with particular emphasis this month on ideas you can use related to oil and commodities inflation. Ronaldo, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I think well, a couple of things jump off the, really off the charts is critical, and that is <clears throat> we have to comment on inflation. Despite what uh, Ben Bernanke said to the Congress uh, a few days ago, um, I do not believe he is correct. I don't even think he thinks he's correct. I think he's saying what he thinks he has to say for domestic consumption. But the truth is, <clears throat> inflation, uh, we said this in the show last month, everything we were looking at then has become even more severe this month. So I'm going to restate it even more strongly. By the second half of this year, you will start to see significant inflation problems. Uh, beginning to arise, <clears throat> you'll see a, at least a half, I'd say a quarter to a half a point of GDP will be cut over the next 12 months from what it would have been. <clears throat> the two drivers of that are the price of oil at $125 a barrel, Brent crude, and the, 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 the incredible problems with uh, grains and commodities. And I just want to point out that the, the, the grain issues, and I'm not going to go into them as we did last week. I did them, and if anybody wants to know about that, they can listen to last week's, last month's show. Uh, the grain issues are being driven by a number of factors, including um, climate change being a huge one, uh, increase in global population, the shift of populations that are eating more protein like India and China, which requires seven times as much grain as the grain itself. So a lot of factors pushing it. When you've got grain prices going up and you've got oil prices going up, you can be sure that all commodity prices are going up. That's going to start to percolate its way through the retail, the wholesale and retail um, uh, markets, uh, I'd say we're probably about two months into the percolation already. It takes about six months to have full effect, and I see no end in that. And by the way, there's one new one that just happened. I want to tell people this is brand new to the program. In addition to the other climatological-driven problems with the food chain, there's a new one, which is heat is ravishing coffee crops because there's a, a particular um, – uh, coffee, as most of you know, probably – um, grows on the side of mountains in, 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 in somewhat temperate regions, but they, it requires a very unusual combination of, of, of climatological characteristics for coffee to grow well in a region, a certain amount of heat, a certain amount of moisture and humidity, etc. And uh, there's a fungus which has never before attacked at these high levels where coffee is growing, and because coffee takes many years to get into full production from a small plant to berries that can be harvested in sufficient quantity, when you start to have a fungus at a different altitude where coffee exists, it threatens the coffee the, the, by as much as I believe it can hit at 30 to 40 percent of the entire crop of a particular area hit where that fungus can be affected. Coffee prices are already up. Coffee is one of those commodities which seems to go up in price and doesn't really reduce demand. People keep drinking as much coffee. So you're going to see that percolate through as well. So with what's going on in your gas tank, 
with what's going on in the price of everything that, get, that gas is attached to, which is the entire global fuel system, and with the increase in the price of food that you eat, watch for inflation in the next six months. It's going to keep going up. Now, those countries that deal with it best will continue to do better than those countries who don't. Let's take an example. On this program a year ago, when uh, the Canadian dollar was down around 85, 83, 85, 87 cents in that range, it was bouncing around between 83 and 87 cents to the dollar, we said then, correctly, the Canadian dollar will rise against the U.S. dollar. Uh, today, the Canadian dollar is at a dollar three. It hasn't been that high. Howard, do you remember when 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 Canada was even at parity? It's been I don't know it's been so long. Well, it was at parity a couple of years back when uh, after the economic collapse and the commodities started coming back into favor. Uh, about I'd say a year and a half ago, it had reached parity, um, but it then dipped back down, and now it got obviously much back up because of the rise in oil prices. Uh, and that and rise. Other and other commodities. I mean, don't forget right. they're a but, huge but that, right, I think, You know, Canada is heavily dependent on, for its economy on oil shale production. And any time you see the price of oil go up, the Canadian dollar tends to, and I won't say this is a strict relationship, but it tends to go up as well. Actually, I think it's broader than that. I think it's much broader than the oil dollar. I think what it is is it's a, it's a country that not one bank went broke because they didn't allow their banks to speculate like ours did. So there was no bailout. <clears throat> there was no financial collapse in Canada, as you know. That's so there's right lending too. going on. You have a commodity-rich country with very sparse population, probably 32, 33 million people, and they have not only nickel, oil, wheat, I mean, it goes on and on. And climate change is actually helping Canada because they're getting a longer growing season further north. So you've got a country with a much better political situation, much more stable. People don't hate each other there the way they seem to in the United States, even though they have a difference in political views. I'll give you an example. Um, we, we have a, a thriving market in this country for the importation of hemp seeds, which are extremely high in protein, extremely high in alpha-3 omegas. Our farmer, Republican farmers, actually, they're, they're, they're primarily Republicans in North Dakota, have petitioned the U.S. government repeatedly, can they please grow the hemp here because Canada grows it and they ship it here. It's illegal to grow it in America. Not because there is any psychoactive ingredient in hemp. Hemp has less psychoactive ingredients than poppy seeds. The problem is, that the American government, for political reasons, doesn't choose to let its farmers grow a crop that can't be grown fast enough and exported quick enough. So Canada says, okay, we'll grow it and send it to you. China grows it too, by the way. So the, the, the problem is a political stalemate. But in the lightning round, when I focus on the dollar, and you've seen, by the way, the dollar has uh, dropped back down as against the euro. It's dropped down a little bit as against the, um, the pound. I think the dollar has further slippage to come. What's holding it up now is the fear people have, um, which is, always happens. It's called flight to safety. We've talked about it many times in the show. When geopolitical situations are destabilized, the dollar becomes a refuge because people figure the strongest army will win out in the end if everything gets crazy. One could argue whether, we're, whether or not that's true, but that's why the dollar is being held up. The problem is the dollar's weakness is directly related to the fact that the international economy perceives correctly that there's an economic war going on between the political parties in this country and that the American economy is being hurt by it. So the desire to keep Obama from being reelected in 2012 is causing a series of measures which is raising unemployment, i.e. all the state layoffs that are unnecessary, which is driving a lack of adequate regulation at the level of financial institutions, i.e. Europe has much stricter, particularly London, which is probably the international monetary capital along with New York, has much stricter requirements 
on bonus sizes, on bonuses being earned over multiple years. There are more strict requirements in the European community on how banks can do what they do. All of these things that we were supposed to do after the crisis, which we did not do, and we only briefly touched on through the Dodd-Frank bill, all these things together, including the fact that we've resisted, even to this day, regulation of derivatives, to this day. So it tells me that the dollar will continue to slide because the international community is quite correct. The United States economy is not going to do as well in five years from now, which is what people bet on with the dollar, if it doesn't solve its fractious political stalemates. If it does solve its fractious political climate, then I think there are great times ahead for the U.S. and no need for another recession. Let's not forget, though, forces like this in the U.S. were unleashed in Britain, and Britain is now back in recession. They are definitely in double-dip land. So we don't want to go there, and I would say the, the implications for the lightning round are inflation's coming, prepare for it. Example, fixed debt on real estate will make real estate more attractive. You can get a 30-year fixed mortgage. It's a better deal today than it would have been two years from now, two years ago. If foreclosures continue to be reduced, as I think they will, by legitimate legal actions, that means that the amount of houses being dumped on the market will go down and the prices of housing will firm up, particularly since not a lot of whole new housing is being made. So we're looking at, I think, a firming of the housing market over the next 6 to 12 months if this foreclosure thing really does get resolved in a fair way for the average American. Last but not least, I think you're going to see uh, commodity prices, as I say, go up. And I think you're going to see a um, probably a slight firming in commercial real estate. Uh, I don't see a huge lift there, but I don't see peril either. And I believe you're going to start to see some bounce backs for uh, retail uh, real estate, meaning shopping centers and the like. The Blackstone Group just did a nine-point-some billion-dollar deal buying 550 strip shopping centers because they believe that the retail dollar will be stronger in 2012, which I agree with, by the way. And um, last but not least, I think you're going to see the aberration, which was January, was climatologically caused, meaning there was so much snow over such a huge swath of the United States that the data from January, which has led to certain ripple-through adverse things in the economy, will fade away with the better weather we received in February and we're getting this month in March. So I'm looking at a continuing lift of the U.S. economy. I'd say we're probably online to do at least 3.25% GDP growth this year. Um, is there any other specific um, commodity or, or asset class you wanted to hit? Bonds? Well, we... at the, at the, let me just interrupt the, the flow for a second. Rob. We're down to about our last uh, 10 minutes on the show today, and uh, we still have our financial literacy plus two other topics. And So let me ask you, um, yeah, given that our with, time is short. Be careful with bonds. That's all I'll say. Be careful with bonds, and we'll right. talk about why next month. Go ahead, okay. Howard. Where would, you, where would you like to go in the last 10 minutes, given that we're, we're running long uh, we've covered a lot of ground. We've got big issues on the table. Um, I'm going to do. Let me do this very quickly. I want to talk about 1.3 billion people being thirsty, and we're going to do shareholder democracy at the same time. We'll get them both. Okay, First, let's go there. 1.3 billion people thirsty means the total number of people on the planet who are dependent for their source of water, drinkable, potable water, is about 1.3 billion of these people total are dependent on the melt of glaciers. We don't believe at the Academy there will be any significant glaciers left in the world within 20 years, which means that those 1.3 billion people will not have water. Now, 1.3 billion people is roughly 
one-seventh or one-sixth to one-seventh the total population of the globe. When people are dying for lack of access to drinking water, conflict emerges. Uh, we can talk more in a subsequent radio program, but I'm perceiving a tremendous amount of conflict will be growing over time unless we deal with this problem. And the only way we can deal with it is if we dramatically increase renewable energy. And by the way, if we dramatically increase the spending on renewable energy, I'll come up with one way we could afford to do that without busting the budget, we will be able then to build more desalinization plants. And as you know, Howard, as we printed in the currents issue, Right. There's there are already 15,000 15, uh, 15, desal plants, desal plants, plants around the world. And if you have renewable energy to fire them up, that means you can go even further so that all that water that's in the ocean we can get to people who are thirsty on land. However, here's the big however. One way to pay for that, which was suggested by Hazel Henderson and a number of alternative economists, is if you just remove the 16 to $18 billion in subsidies that the fossil fuel industry gets today. I'm not talking about new taxes. Just remove the 16 to 18 billion in total subsidies on an annual basis. Put that into renewable energy, and within less than five years, you will have an explosion of renewable energy, which will create tremendous jobs and tremendous economic benefits for the economy. So that's well, the way to get Let me there. ask you. You know, given the turmoil of our own economy and politics, I've always believed that a lot of this innovation going forward, renewable energy, is going to come from places that have a much greater demand for that need and have the, the political will to do these things. And Israel, for example, that needs water. Australia. Um, do we see that happening? Is that where this progress is, is occurring? No, not really. I'll come back to that in a second. I want to just make one comment, which is how do you get that water uphill and as you know, the Academy has been sponsoring a project now for a couple of years to develop a device called the Hydrolifter, which is a dirigible, which can lift hundreds of thousands of gallons of water to virtually any altitude for almost no energy whatsoever. So that's the way you get water to run uphill. You lift it in the Hydrolifter. If people are interested in that, that project, they should send an email to the Academy and we can tell them more about it. Um, to answer your question about is it coming, are the changes coming from places, let's take like Japan, um, uh, incredibly overpopulated islands. I think total land area of Japan is like the state of, you know, Wyoming. It's, it's, it's so actually small. California is the best. Uh, is California physical okay. comparison, yeah. Yeah, and it's what half the population of America, right? Exactly. Yeah, so half the population of the United States crammed into one place that's only as big as California. You get some idea of how crowded it is. Well, unfortunately. All of the energy policies of that country are basically ones that they borrow by looking at what the Department of Energy is doing. So when we went back into nuclear, they went back into nuclear. Uh, they've done almost nothing with their hydrogen initiatives, which is incredible because that's where they really were headed that made some sense. Um, I don't see Japan being the place that gets done. In a similar vein, uh, Australia is looking more at the problem of flood right now, too much water, and how to capture it than they are at desalinization, although I do believe that Australia will eventually, within the next two years, become much, much more aggressive on desal. Where well, you see it happening is in places like Singapore. They've had flooding on one part of the continent and extreme droughts in other sections. They've been vacillating back and forth. Um, yeah, Brisbane was underwater for three and a half weeks this, month, uh, right, this year. Right, right. Yeah, and so they're, but, they're, but they're right now they're dealing with flood control as their number one issue. 
Uh, they'll get back into desal, I think, once they figure out what they're going to do about flood control. And what they're dealing with there is very simple. One of the predicted and certain outcomes of climate change is that you will have massive downpours punctuated by drought. Uh, so the reason for that is because the, the, the rising temperatures, which is occurring on the planet, more water evaporates into the atmosphere. When two fronts collide, that water comes down suddenly with, with deluge-type proportions. And then uh, after that collision, because the, the atmosphere is hotter, there's now longer periods of time that look like, quote, summer, close quote. The seasons, if you notice, globally are all changing. The seasons are no longer spring, winter, fall, summer like they used to be. Uh, and that's also a predicted effect of climate change. So what I see happening with places like Singapore, where they have the political control, i.e. it's one family runs the country, they have the wealth, and they have the need for water because they don't want to be dependent on Malaysia, um, they are now one of the leaders in desal. Places like Southern California are becoming leaders in, in desal uh, because of enormous populations and desert-like conditions. So there's a lot of places where desal will be aggressively promoted. And just a quick statistic, the price per gallon of desalinated water is roughly half of what it was just 10 years ago. And I believe that can be cut by another 50 to 75% if we were to start using renewable energy. Um, does that cover the water issue? Uh, I think it certainly does. And we're down to our last three minutes. So. Okay, the proxy season. Uh, real quick, folks, shareholder democracy is getting to be an interesting thing because of some changes the SEC made in the laws. 3% uh, shareholder, in effect, can put things on the ballot at a corporation these days. And some of the things that they're looking at come directly out of the Citizens United case. So pension funds are now asking, independent investors are asking, demanding, really, of corporations. Tell us how much money you spend for politics if it's our money, meaning it's a public corporation. It's private, there's nothing you can do about it. But if it's public, people are asking corporations to declare what is their policy set by the board of directors with respect to political donations, both direct political contributions and so-called indirects, which means they go to um, uh, PACs and the like. I believe that these beginnings, these rumblings of shareholder democracy are just the first stirring of something that's going to start to happen more dramatically as, as the demands for a change in corporate behavior reaches them, not just from the lack of political oversight, but when it reaches in from the level of share owners. Um, and I think if people are not watching, they should be watching the social responsibility investing community. Uh, it's over $3 trillion in this country. It's a huge amount of money. That represents people who own stocks in companies that want companies to behave in socially responsible ways. Uh, and I think there's going to be more of that. Uh, I want to put a plug in for a great conference that happens once a year called Social Responsible Investors of the Rockies. It's now in its 26th year. Last year the meeting was held in, uh, um, in uh, uh, San Antonio, Texas. This year it will be held in uh, New Orleans. I'll be a plenary speaker at that where we'll be talking about how to support changes in the boardroom through shareholder democracy and the like. And uh, anybody who wants to know more, I rec recommend highly you go to SRIR, Social Responsible Investing of the Rockies, and consider attending that conference. It's, it's the best one in the, of, the, of the year in the U.S. That's it on shareholder democracy very briefly, unless there's some questions I can address. Uh, no, nothing's coming up at the moment, and we're really down to our last minute. Um, this has been a, a sort of wild and, and, and woolly show today, covering <laughs> a lot of ground, a lot of territory. Um, any last words on this, Ronaldo? No, I think um, thanks for your patience because obviously this this was a little more 
social commentary this week, particularly with George's questions and comments, than normal. Uh, I hope we've addressed the economic issues people want us to talk about. Uh, I, I would really urge our listeners, and thank you because more and more of you are listening every, every month, uh, please send in any specific questions about what's important to you economically on your day-to-day life. Please, if you're not already a free subscriber to Currents in Commerce, the free publication of the World Business Academy, go to worldbusiness.org, become a free subscriber. That way you're sort of a member of the club. And uh, this this conversation we have on the on the on the radio will make more sense to you because it's within the context of a document we publish monthly as well for free. So this show's free, that document is free. We're doing that so that you can meet the challenge I put to you at the beginning of this hour. Please become better informed. It matters to everybody, not just to you, but to me. So do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. No man is an island unto himself alone and complete. We're all affected by what each of us does. And there's no time any longer for us to put our heads in the sand like ostriches and assume somebody else will fix the problems that we face. At this point, the challenges are too great. There's no more time for ostriches. We all have to do it because the bell is tolling for all of us. I leave you with this challenge. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for your neighbor, your children, your grandchildren, your partner, your lover, your friend, or someone that you care about in the world, because there must be at least one person you care about, do it for them. Thanks very much, Howard. Thank you, Ronaldo, as well. And to finish with a little Shakespeare, all's well as that ends well. So, again, thank you all very much for participating in the call, for listening, and uh, tune in next month where we'll have another show, and hopefully we'll cover some of these topics that we did miss today. With that, bid you all goodbye, and have a good month. Thank you. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.